Joy is the serious business of heaven. This is Pints with Jack, Season 5, Episode 34, Ecumenism Month, LDS Lewis, After Hours with Professor Bruce Wilson-Young. Good morning, everyone. Pints with Jack is your weekly C.S. Lewis podcast, where three friends, Andrew, David, and Matt, break down and discuss the works of C.S. Lewis. This season, we read The Four Loves, and we're now in Ecumenism Month. And today, I'm talking to a member of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints, Elder Bruce Wilson Young. Professor Young is the author of Family Life in the Age of Shakespeare. He's Associate English Professor at Brigham Young University. His main areas of research are Shakespeare, English Renaissance literature, C.S. Lewis, and the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas. Together with his wife, Margaret, they have four children and five grandchildren, plus five recently added step-grandchildren. And he blogs at The Face of the Other. Professor Young, welcome to Pints with Jack. Hello, David. Good to be with you. I am really excited about this episode. I first had the idea actually years ago. I think we were still in season one. I was at a bookstore in Los Angeles. It kills me I didn't buy the book, but I remember flipping through a book about C.S. Lewis. And there was a line in it where it mentioned the fact that the LDS absolutely love C.S. Lewis. And so that I've always found interesting. And so when we decided that we're going to do an ecumenism month where we're going to speak to uh, people from lots of different religious backgrounds, I immediately went looking for somebody to talk to me about Lewis from a Latter-day Saint perspective. And you came highly recommended via Facebook. I'm glad to hear that. (laughs) Now, you're not in the United States right now. Could you please explain to the listeners where you are? Yes, I'm currently in Mujimai, which is uh, probably the second largest city in the Democratic Republic of the Congo. And I've been here for a couple of months. Uh, My wife and I are serving here as missionaries. Have you been there before? Uh, We've uh, we've been to the country several times, uh, not to the city before. But uh, my wife has been to... uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo about nine times, I think, and I've been here about three. Uh, We've had a long uh, and interesting relationship with the country. Okay. Well, today I am drinking black tea. I am of the opinion that you should always have a little bit of milk with black tea, but something went wrong with our milk and it was off. So I'm drinking it black today. Uh, Are you drinking anything? Yes, I have hot chocolate. Lovely. Well, cheers. Cheers. (laughs) So could you please share a little bit about yourself? Who are you? What do you do? What's your spiritual journey? Well, I'm a lifelong Latter-day Saint, which has certainly shaped my thinking and my my life. But I'm also quite a a searcher and a thinker, I guess. And so I've really uh, thought through just about everything. And and I've... uh, I've learned in some way, I think, to maybe integrate the insights of my mind and the feelings of my heart and the impressions of the spirit and um, have, a, have a deep conviction of, especially of, of Jesus Christ as the Son of God and as my Savior and as the one that I need to be following. And there's so much else that's, that's contained in, in uh, my view of the world. But I was educated at Brigham Young University and then Columbia and Harvard Universities. And after that, taught for 38 years at Brigham Young University in the English department. 
you've already mentioned my specialties, Shakespeare, Renaissance literature, C.S. Lewis, I would add, and the philosophy of Emmanuel Levinas. I started teaching classes on Lewis because I love Lewis, but I can uh, rationalize it by the fact that he was a specialist in the same areas that I am academically. And so I feel that affinity with him academically as well. Oh, let me add one other thing. Uh, in the last couple of years, my wife and I have produced two feature films, first titled Heart of Africa, the second Heart of Africa 2, Companions, both of them filmed in the Democratic Republic of the Congo by a Congolese film team, in fact, co-written and directed by a Congolese uh, director. And uh, they are the first films filmed in this country by a Congolese film team to appear in theaters in the United States. So in all of that, where did you first come across C.S. Lewis? Well, my first memory of Lewis is from uh, looking on bookshelves at home when I was very young. And uh, my mother had a copy of, uh, it was the three books that became later Mere Christianity, but they were the separate ones, The Case for Christianity, Christian Behavior, and so on. And I pulled one down, I think it was Beyond Personality, and read a little bit about the Trinity and just found it utterly confusing. That's my only memory as a, as a child. Uh, my, my, my next memory was as I was serving as a missionary uh, in France in 1970, uh, another missionary had a copy of Screwtape Letters. And I read Screwtape Letters and was blown away. It felt to me, I've described it since as being like a a cold glass of reality. <laughs> it felt as if the insights in that book were precisely directed at me, that there, were, there was moment after moment of gotcha, gotcha moments where, ah, I saw things about myself that I really hadn't seen clearly. It, it really shook me up in the sense that it made me feel like I needed to stop trying to uh, believe a little bit of everything, but needed to really uh, focus and uh, decide what I believed and live according to it. And uh, I found that Lewis's insights also about how, simply how we live, how we treat other people were penetrating and, and uh, powerful. So that was, that was what, what converted me to Lewis, that experience in 1970. <laughs> now, before we go too far into discussing Lewis from an LDS perspective, I think we should actually talk a little bit about the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints. Because depending upon where listeners live, they might not have encountered a Mormon or be very familiar with some of the unique doctrines taught by the church. Speaking for myself, I didn't think Mormonism at all was on my radar while I was in England. It was only when I moved to the United States that I actually met, met, met my first Mormons. So to kick things off, would you mind just giving our listeners a little bit of an introduction to the founding, the claims, and the teaching of the Church of Jesus Christ and Latter-day Saints? Uh, yes, I'll try to do that briefly. I hope it's briefly enough. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is a vibrant and growing uh, religious movement, you might say, uh, faith, uh, church. Um, but basically, um, our belief is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is eternal and has been made known to humankind at various periods of time, and that people have uh, repeatedly rejected it or corrupted it, and it has had to be restored periodically. And we believe that uh, uh, after the, the earthly ministry of Jesus Christ, his crucifixion and resurrection, 
and the uh, work of the uh, early apostles, there was another what we call great apostasy, a corruption and, and rejection of the fullness of Christ's gospel, and that there needed to be a restoration. Uh, we believe that the, the reformers and others uh, did great things, but in some ways didn't do it quite right or enough, and, and in any case couldn't do it in the way that we believe it needed to be done, which would be a restoration directed by God himself. And so what we believe is that in 1820, a young man in upstate New York in, in the United States who was a religious seeker and wanted to know of his standing with God and also noted, wanted to know what church to join, that as he prayed, he had a powerful vision of God the Father and Jesus Christ who told him not to join any of the existing churches, that they were all corrupt, and gave him some sense that he would be instrumental in the restoration. And so we believe that over the succeeding years, there were a, a number of additional angelic visits and, and other uh, events that led to the what we consider to be and call the restoration of the Church of Jesus Christ, along with the fullness of the gospel, priesthood authority, and organization, including prophets and apostles, which we we have today a living prophet and, and 12 apostles. And um, as far as theology goes, a lot of it is very familiar to other Christians. Faith in Jesus Christ, repentance, baptism by immersion for the remission of sins, the laying on of hands for the gift of the Holy Ghost, and enduring faithfully to the end. And that ultimately we believe that virtually all human beings will receive some degree of glory but the highest will be for those who accept and follow Jesus Christ, and that they will, as uh, things the Apostle John says, be like him, for they will see him as he is, and that we will be able to partake of the divine nature and participate in God's work uh, through the eternities. So that is it in a nutshell. Uh, I, I should add maybe also that um, there are now about 17 million members of the church around the world uh, with missionary work going on in just about any nation that will allow it. Thank you for that summary. So that leads me to ask the question about that reference that I saw in that book in Los Angeles that I never bought. I'm pretty sure it said that C.S. Lewis is the most often quoted non-LDS found in LDS documents. Is that true? And also, what are these documents? So the Catholic Church has their papal encyclicals and bulls and all this sort of stuff. What are the LDS equivalent? Where is Lewis actually being quoted? Well, the, the claim is not maybe quite strictly true. It's close to being true. Uh, first, let me just explain where we would look for uh, those references to Lewis. Probably the most important place would be in discourses, talks given in what we call general conference, which is held twice a year. And the speakers are leaders of the church. Um, and other places might be simply books written by church leaders or by members, and it's hard to track down all the references to Lewis and all of those sources. But if we, if we just talk about those general conference discourses, Lewis has been quoted uh, at least 30 or 40 times, uh, most of those since the 1970s. And apparently someone did a careful study, and apparently the most quoted non-Latter-day Saint or non-scriptural figure in those uh, discourses is not Lewis, but Ralph Waldo Emerson. <laughs> oh. However, Lewis is very close to the top and has been frequently quoted. 
Okay, so listeners, we have just switched over to Skype because the internet wasn't working too well, so things might sound a little bit different. Uh, But let's carry on with the interview. And this really is the main question that I want to ask today. Why is it that the LDS love Lewis so much? Well, that's a great question. Um, I think one of the reasons is the same reason that many Christians and even non-Christians love Lewis, and that is simply he is writing style is delightful. Uh, not only is uh, he a delight to read uh, simply in terms of his style, but he's able to turn uh, Christian ideas and, and simply significant moral ideas into uh, vividly imagined stories. Uh, so both the essays and the stories are, are really appealing. So I already think that they think they are to to just about everyone, uh, at least everyone uh, who loves Lewis. But there are some, uh, I guess, deeper reasons why Latter-day Saints love Lewis. One is that um, we, like Lewis, I think, believe in the literal reality of the things uh, recounted in the New Testament. The miracles of Christ, the ministry of Christ, his resurrection, the gifts of the Spirit in the, the, the early New Testament church, and um, above all, the, the person Jesus Christ himself, uh, the fact that he is the, the Son of God, the, our Savior, uh, and uh, a real living being, um, not just a historical figure. And uh, very importantly, of course, Christ as the perfect revelation of the nature of God. So that's one of the important things. We, we respond very much to his is a genuine belief in all of those things. The other thing, I think, is that um, Lewis is, uh, Lewis both as a person, as a writer, and in many ways focuses on what it means to be a disciple of Christ, what it means to live the Christian life. Uh, for instance, the Chronicles of Narnia, uh, not to mention many of his, the other essays and, and Screwtape Letters and The Great Divorce, are primarily about uh, what it means to uh, to live the Christian life. And I think it has been said by um, one of uh, the leaders of our church that he looks to Lewis not for doctrine, but for his depiction of discipleship. Now, I would put it somewhat differently, because I think doctrine and discipleship are closely connected. But I think it is true that uh, Lewis, one of the exciting things, as well as the challenging things about Lewis, is that he seems to be giving us, in a way, the invitation to take Christianity seriously and to commit ourselves fully, wholeheartedly, to live the Christian life. And I think that's uh, something that many of us find appealing as well. Yeah, it's often said by people that Lewis, if he does one thing particularly well, is portraying goodness and making your heart want that goodness when he portrays his characters that you want to imitate. Yeah. Okay, so he's a great communicator. He encourages you towards Christian living and holy life. Anything more specific to the LDS Church in particular? Yes, I I would mention uh, several things. Let me recap a little bit of what I've already said, but belief in in Christ and also in a in a very personal God. Whatever the differences in our, our views of God, for Lewis, uh, God is very personal, is very real, and is loving and redemptive, 
and also demands our complete commitment. He's uh, in some ways a demanding God. But along with that, Lewis describes the results of that commitment. Our natures can be transformed. That's, I think, one of his main themes, is the, the ways we can be changed. If you think of Eustace in uh, The Voice of the Dawn Treader becoming a dragon myth and being undragoned, that his transformation. That there are other examples uh, throughout Lewis's work. And Larry has been especially resonant with Lewis's unabashed way of, uh, of talking about humans' capacity to become like God. Lewis, in fact, uses the word becoming gods and goddesses. Um, that raises all sorts of questions about exactly what he means by that. But uh, I think for Latter-day Saints, there's something really resonant there. Uh, and in fact, um, maybe, I, maybe I should just say a little bit about why I feel Lewis is on the same track that Latter-day Saints are, even though there have been those who have questioned that. Uh, who said, well, no, uh, he may talk, we may talk the same way, but we're not talking about the same thing. But one important thing to say about that is that whatever Latter-day Saints has speculated about what it means to become like God, to become heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, to partake of the divine nature, um, we, we actually don't know that much about what, what it involves. We sometimes talk about, use the... Uh, the language from Revelation, about the book of Revelation, rather, about becoming kings and priests unto God. Uh, Lewis alludes to that in his essay, The Weight of Glory, when he says, what is being promised to us? Well, being with Christ, becoming like Christ, having some sort of official position <laughs> in the hereafter, and then glory, which means some kind of transformation, as he puts it, becoming a dazzling, radiant, immortal creature, pulsating all through with such energy and joy and wisdom and love as we cannot now imagine. So uh, I don't think any Latter-day Saint has spoken more vividly than Lewis has about that prospect of becoming like God, in some sense becoming a God. Now, before I go on, <laughs> I'm waxing a little enthusiastic, I'm wondering if you have any question about that that would that I could respond to about that claim that Lewis and Martin have a similarity there. Sure. So Lewis, when he speaks about theosis, although he never uses the word, he speaks about, in all the places that you mention, the weight of glory, particularly the end of mere Christianity. He's drawing from an idea that you find in the early church fathers. He wrote the foreword to uh, St. Athanasius's uh, On the Incarnation. So words the LDS also look to those sources as an expression of, I believe you guys call it eternal progression, uh, but this idea of theosis or deification. Would you look to that, or would you make a distinction in some way? Um, I think we make uh, a number of distinctions, and, and maybe I'll elaborate on those a little bit further later on, but, but let me just um, note what I think some people think is a difference and what I think is less of a difference than than it may appear. Um, in, in mere Christianity, Lewis says that, of course, uh, uh, we will reflect back to Christ, his nature, though, of course, on a smaller scale. And that, that is something that Latter-day Saints would maybe question. It's not just reflecting back that glory, it is actually becoming glorified. It is acquiring 
that the very nature of the very divine nature and not simply reflecting it. And on a lesser scale, um, maybe a matter of degree, yes, but not, not essentially a different nature. Uh, we believe that we are the offspring of God. I think Paul in Acts chapter 17 says, uses that language, and that we have in an embryonic form the same nature as God and be, can become like him in, a, in the sense of acquiring the fullness of his wisdom, glory, love, perfection, goodness, all, all of those things. But Lewis um, says something a little bit similar in a passage in The Pilgrim's Regress. It's not as well known as some of the others, but there he has a little poem in which he says essentially that the experience of embodiment and life on earth makes humans different from the angels. And then these lines, so that we, though small, may quiver with fire's same substantial flame as thou, nor reflect merely, so not merely reflecting, as lunar angel back to be cold flame. Gods we are, thou hast said, and we pay dearly. Now, do uh, Latter-day Saints believe that we will ever become equal with God and Christ? Well, equal perhaps in nature, but not in position. They will always be our Father and, and uh, our Savior. So those would be the distinctions I would make. I hope that makes some sense anyway. Yeah, that that's that's helpful, and I actually think it probably leads into the question of an understanding of who God is. Where would you see similarities and differences between the LDS position and Lewis? Okay, well, first of all, the, the similarity is simply, as I've already said, that Lewis sees God as a very personal, real being who has feelings and and gives us commands and has expectations of us and. Uh, interacts with us in a concrete way. However, Lewis also accepts the uh, classical view, I guess is what we might call it. Uh, a lot of things believe that this classical view of God is not in the New Testament and is developed after a Christian's encounter with Greek philosophy and, and, and the, the councils that followed. But uh, Lewis's view is accepts the classic view that God is essentially outside of time and space, that he is a timeless being, that he is not only a perfect being, but the absolute being, the ground, the very ground of being, that, that being who gives being to all other beings. And that almost uh, appears to make it impossible that we would actually encounter God directly. That, that was the view of, of the Platonists, certainly. I'm not quite sure how Lewis feels we would encounter God except through Christ, but, but he does accept this view of God as a timeless, absolute being, whereas Latter-day Saints believe that God is... There's some dispute as to whether we would say he's in time, but he has a relationship with, with time as we know it in some way. He's somehow in the same universe with us and is embodied. So that is a, a distinctive and... A, controversial, you might say, view that Latter-day Saints have of God. So that's the, the big difference. I would, however, <laughs> if I may, again, like to suggest that it's maybe not as great a difference as some people might think, 
because uh, Lewis felt, I think he had a, a kind of, uh, I wouldn't say conflicted, but a paradoxical view of God, that God does have those attributes of timelessness and absolute being and, and so on. But he was also concerned that God not be turned into an abstraction or, as he puts it, a featureless generality. Uh, in fact, he says somewhere that God himself must be concrete and individual in the highest degree. He is not a formless everything about whom nothing in particular and everything in general is true, but is a particular thing or being with a determinate character and must in fact be the most concrete thing there is, the most individual, organized, and minutely articulated. Um, that's all quoting from Lewis. So that leads to the question, how does he then interpret the creeds which refer to God as being without body, parts, or passions? Lewis has a very interesting uh, way of reinterpreting those phrases. He argues that what they mean is that God possesses body, parts, and passions in a transcendent sense. Quoting from him again, the words incorporeal and impersonal are misleading because they suggest he lacks some reality which we possess. It would be safer to call him transcorporeal, transpersonal. He has corporeality and personality in the most transcendent and high degree, and we have only a, a, a sort of a very tepid, <laughs> a vague version of those same realities. And, and so another quotation from the key, God is unspeakable not by being indefinite, but by being too definite for the unavoidable vagueness of language. So that doesn't put him in a position of accepting the Latter-day Saint point of view, but it does mean that he really wants to see God as being absolutely concrete, real, and even possessing some kind of substantial reality that, uh, that some of the creeds don't seem to allow. That's really interesting. I had often wondered what the LDS view of classical theism was, the kind of views expressed by St. Thomas Aquinas, speaking of God as ipsum esse, the very ground of being. And it seems like there's less of an emphasis of God's transcendence and more of his immanence. Is that fair? Yes, I, I think that is, that is fair. That just reminded me, by the way, of how Lewis ends his autobiography, Surprised by Joy, where he says that his conversion from believing in the absolute to believing in God and then believing in Christ was a movement towards the more concrete and the more imminent. That's just an interesting uh, side note. But yes, I, I think, though, that there is, among Latter-day Saints, a sense of God's transcendence. His power, his glory, his knowledge, his wisdom, his love, all of his attributes have a, a, a degree of perfection, let's say, of absolute perfection, which is far beyond where we are now, and that uh, our aspiration to become like him requires not only our, our active participation and our consent, of course, but uh, God's grace and uh, the atoning and redemptive work of Christ, and that it's a work that will not be finished in this life uh, and will continue uh, hereafter for us to be, be able to come to that fullness of God's nature and glory. So there is a transcendence there, but we also believe that we are the same kind of being that God is in, in some sense. We are part of his family, 
And I think our emphasis is not as much on the the power or transcendence of God as on his goodness, his absolute goodness and his absolute love. And that that is what makes God God, is his goodness and his love. But am I right in saying that the LDS view isn't that God has always been as he is? So has there been change in God from that point of view? Yeah. As man is now, God once was. As God is now, man may become. Yes, that's a familiar, um, what, couplet, you might say. (laughs) It's actually not uh, official uh, doctrine in in the sense of those, those exact words. I think most of us would say we don't actually understand uh, the full story and uh, and what uh, how things have become as they have become. We we essentially consider all of that to be most of us I think consider all of that to be something that we are not at present uh, capable of fully understanding. But the essential thing for us is that in in terms of our relationship with God, God has always been God and will always be God. And the prehistory, uh, we are not, uh, <laughs> we're not privy to. And, uh, but it, it, it is true that we do believe that God exists within a reality that he did not make out of nothing. We, we do, don't accept the mm. idea of ex nihilo creation. God, with divine power and wisdom, organized pre-existing elements to create the universe as we know it, including the earth on which we live. And we believe that the ex nihilo creation is not, uh, not a biblical doctrine. The Bible doesn't make it clear exactly what creation means, but it, uh, it doesn't definitively in any way express the ex nihilo view. We believe that, that is another addition that was made to uh, Christian understanding after the time of the New Testament. So do you believe the universe is eternal in that case? That, God, that, that the universe is eternal? Yes, if God isn't and he's just simply rearranging pre-existing matter, does that mean that the universe itself is eternal? Um, I would say uh, the universe in some form or more, uh, I'd probably be more comfortable in saying what we have scriptures that say, which is the elements are eternal. That is, some kind of elemental stuff is eternal. And personal beings are also eternal, including God and including the rest of us. We have something eternal in our nature, both prior to our birth as well as after our, our death. So uh, there are at least two kinds of eternal things in reality, the elemental uh, stuff and the personal beings, or sometimes have been referred to as intelligences. Perhaps also if there are eternal principles or laws governing all of that, but those are those are the, all the things that are eternal. Interesting. Okay. I want to ask lots more questions about that, but let's bring this back to Lewis. And a question I probably should have asked earlier on. Do we know if Lewis had any contact with LDS missionaries at any point? I, I doubt that he had contact with LDS missionaries, but he knew something about Latter-day Saints. He refers to Salt Lake City and the Great Divorce as one of the exotic locations one of the characters wants to visit. <laughs> he mentions the Book of Mormon in his essay, uh, The Literary Impact of the Authorized Version, and knew at least that the book style is superficially similar to the King James Version. Mm. And we, I do know that one of uh, our church members sent him a copy of the Book of Mormon, but I don't know whether he 
opened it or how much he read. Other than that, I don't know of any specific evidences of his familiarity with Latter-day Saints or with the Church or with our doctrines. Okay, cool. Is there any more kind of doctrinal similarities, differences that you'd like to talk about? Well, honestly, there are dozens of things. I, I taught a class on C.S. Lewis for over 20 years at Brigham Young University, so almost all my students were Latter-day Saints, and they would often write papers about similarities with between what Lewis teaches in various ways, including in his fiction and Latter-day Saint understanding. So there are all sorts of things that uh, that could be seen as similar. I'll, I'll just mention uh, two of them. Well, two or three, we'll just see. <laughs> One is his emphasis on free will. Since I've also taught world literature and have had some dealings with the actual writings of Luther and Calvin, I I know that free will is actually not what uh, was rejected by some of the early reformers. But Lewis is very keen on it. That's probably because it, it has become the view, of, the dominant view among Anglicans. But that resonates with us, the idea that we actually are beings with agency, that we can accept or reject God's grace, that we, we need to make choices, and that God wants, not only allows us, but wants us to participate actively in the process of salvation and uh, and redemption and, and theosis, even. That, that doesn't mean that our part is the greatest part, because uh, we are uh, who we are, but, but we need to be actively engaged in those things. That also connects with what Lewis says about grace and works. In their Christianity, he puts it beautifully in various ways, but he says that trying to say which is more important, grace and works, is like trying to say which blade in a pair of scissors is more important. Uh, they can't be separated. They work together. That's the only way that they can work. And so Lewis's articulation of the relation of grace and works has been very helpful to Latter-day Saints, because it it really has helped us to kind of clarify our own view, I think, and uh, see that we we very much believe in God's grace, the fact that it is absolutely essential, but also that as we respond to God's grace, works flow from that, and those works are not simply automatically produced through God's grace, but are we are actively involved in, in that response to God's grace and in doing the works of grace in that way. So uh, maybe one um, one other thing that, that might be an interesting um, take is that, uh, I don't know if you're, you probably are aware that Lewis had communicated with young readers of the Chronicles of Narnia. They asked him questions, and somebody asked what each of the books of the Chronicles of Narnia was about, and he uh, obviously said that uh, the magician's nephew is about the creation and fall, that the uh, last battle is about the end of the world, the line which in the wardrobe is about the crucifixion and resurrection. For Latter-day Saints, Lewis beautifully portrays the role of justice and mercy in in Christ's redemptive work through the way that he portrays uh, Aslan in the, the Lion Age in the Wardrobe. But then we get to Prince Caspian, and Lewis, what Lewis says is that the Prince Caspian is about restoration of the true religion after a corruption. And Latter-day Saints scratch their head and say, wait. That's what we believe. So Lewis may have had a somewhat different understanding, but that's exactly how we see it. And then um, the voice of the Donfitter is about the spiritual life. The silver chair deals with the continued war against the powers of darkness. 
the whole spiritual world imagined in the Chronicles of Narnia, and I would add the science fiction books also, feels very comfortable, uh, very familiar in many ways to, to Latter-day Saints. So those are some of the many ways in which Latter-day Saints resonate with, with the world. When he started talking about the Chronicles of Narnia, I knew he's going to get to Prince Caspian. That's where he's going to go. <laughs> Which I have to say, honestly, though, uh, Prince Caspian is, is not my favorite among the Chronicles, but, but they're all good. That is also a very common opinion. What actually is your favorite Narnian Chronicle? Uh, that's so hard to say, like choosing my favorite child, but uh, the magician's nephew, the magician's nephew, it was the hardest one for him to write. It appears he took it up about three times trying to finish it, but I think it's the most perfectly shaped and the tone uh, is just right through the magician's nephew. And it, it gives the probably the most beautiful depiction of Aslan as what Latter-day Saints sometimes called the weeping God, as their tears come down Aslan's face. Like Jesus, Aslan is capable of weeping. He does love tenderly. He can be very stern. But uh, so it is a, it's a beautiful depiction of, of Christ and of the Father's love. Well, I think this has been a really fascinating conversation. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of discussion about some of the topics that we've raised. So uh, don't be surprised if you get a message from me at some point in the future wanting to bring you back on to talk about some of these things some more. But to wrap things up, I just have a general question. How has Lewis enriched your faith life personally? Uh there are two or three ways that he's, he's done that. I already mentioned my first really powerful encounter with Lewis was reading the Screwtape Letters and being awakened uh, spiritually, really seeing, getting, maybe for the first time, that that uh, our experience as human beings really is an essentially spiritual experience. It is one of cosmic dimensions that we are, uh, as Lewis might put it, on a knife blade between heaven and hell. That's not exactly how I see things uh, ultimately, since we have a, a broader view of the possibility of salvation. But, and yet, I think it is absolutely true that every choice we make and every detail of our lives has crucial, eternal uh, impact. And that's something that Lewis awoke me to and helped me to seek to have the kind of, of commitment to living uh, the Christian life that, that he seemed to invite. The other thing is that uh, I think, as with all of us, I need from time to time some, uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? Some reawakening, yes, some re-energizing. And there are many ways that happens. For me, it's probably most often through personal prayer, through scripture, uh, reading scripture and pondering uh, in that way. But reading Lewis is one of the, for me, surefire ways to have that sort of re-energizing, spiritual re-energizing. And so I, I've often turned to Lewis simply to feel more spiritually alive, also intellectually alive and morally alive. He has uh, an imaginative, alive in an imaginative way as well. He brings together, as very few do, emotion, imagination, intellect, and, and spiritual feeling and uh, spiritual commitment. And so he's just been... Uh, a great source of that kind of spiritual energizing for me. <laughs> Professor Young, thanks so much for coming on the show. 
I hear the landlord's final call for drinks. So to wrap things up, where can people go if they'd like to find out more about you or some of the things that we've spoken about today? Uh, where can they go? Well, um, I'm currently so involved with other things that I'm not putting myself out there in public as much as maybe I should. But I do have a, a blog called The Face of the Other. That's a phrase I borrow from Emmanuel Levinas. Um, and that's just at faceoftheother.blogspot.com. That would be one way to, to follow some of my thinking. Excellent. Well, thanks again to Bruce for coming on the show. Thanks to all of our listeners, patron supporters, particularly our top tier supporters. Thomas, Deborah, Anonymous, Bill and Joanna, Snort, Bud, Jane, John, Kevin, Brian, Kay, Paul, Kimberly, Gillis, Gary, Stephen, Matt, Kelly, Chris, John, James, Kate, Peter, David and Rowdy. If you've enjoyed this interview, please share it on social media. And please join us next time when we'll be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers.